Double D bonus episode. Hey guys, this is a bonus episode, solo. That means I'm by myself. So I decided that I would share a story from my local city, which is Buffalo, New York. Um, it's a sad story, um, but it's a story I didn't know about until probably three years ago when I bought a book um, because it had the, it had the, the title. Okay. The title is who killed Buffalo. And I was like, what a weird fucking title. Turns out it's about my city. Um, <laughs> so I hope you guys enjoy this. I'm by myself. Please be gentle. I'm a nervous person, so I'm going to say, um, there's going to be awkward pauses and I'm not great at stuff. So thank you for listening. And if you decide to run away, I don't blame you, but I hope you do stay because this is an amazing story that I didn't even know happened right around the corner from where I live. So okie dokie. So today we're going to be talking about Cheryl Joel's. She's from Buffalo, New York, and she's a female killer, which is interesting. So let's get this party started. Children are often told to never talk to strangers. And in almost every case, that proverbial stranger is imagined to be a menacing man in a raincoat lurking in a nearby park bench. True. In the summer of 1961, 15-year-old Cheryl Joel's kidnapped children in a nice middle-class neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. Actually, North Buffalo. If you know, then you know. <clears throat> On the afternoon of June 22nd, Richie, who was five years old, was playing hide-and-seek with his friends when a woman walked up to him and told him, my mother is your mother, and you're supposed to come with me. Then, when the boy hesitated, she grabbed him by the wrist and snapped at him. If you don't come with me, I'll drown you. Confused and frightened, Richie let the woman take him away. She told him everything would be okay as long as he didn't cry. If anyone stopped them, he was to say that his name was Davy Johnson. As they walked, the woman ate Tootsie Rolls but didn't share it with Richie. She promised him candy later, as long as he didn't cry. Twice, she stopped to ask people for directions, and holding the boy tightly by the hand, they entered the zoo. Along the way, she picked up various objects from the street, butcher's twine, and a plastic bag. I mean, already? Doesn't sound good for little, little, uh, what's his name, Richie? Little Richie? Doesn't sound so good. Let's keep going. They walked the zoo and then onto the golf course next to it. 
The greenskeeper, named Paul Costa, yelled at them to get off the fairway. It's very likely that Costa had saved the boy's life. Fleeing the park, Joel's walked Richie down along the railroad tracks, finally stopping next to a lonely pond along the side of the tracks. She told him this was where she was going to drown him and that he would never ever see his parents again. Perhaps fearing the boy might struggle too much, though she apparently changed her mind. Uh, she gave the boy a piece of candy and then told him that they were going to play cowboys and Indians. She tied him up to the railroad tracks, put a plastic bag over his head, and then walked away. Richie was eventually able to free himself and make his way to a nearby house. The woman who lived there called the police. Richie and his mother spent most of the night at the police station recounting the events of the day. Even at age five, he had he had remarkable recall and the police officers wanted every single detail because on April 23rd, another five-year-old named Susan Benedict had been lured from her home by a woman who offered her candy and a trip to the zoo. Susan had been found alive tied to the same tracks. Police feared that they had a deranged woman abducting children in Buffalo and that she might strike again. They had no idea how soon or how horrifying the next incident would be. Buffalo Police Commissioner Frank Felicita personally took charge of the investigation. He ordered a house-to-house -house search of the neighborhood. He spoke with the media, asking local newspapers to put a call out for information from readers. He also contacted the psychiatric hospitals in the area for information on female outpatients, especially those that had been released to serve as domestics in homes in North Buffalo. You know, domestics, maids, you know, shit like that. <clears throat> the disappearance of little Andrew became front page news that weekend. A massive search began Friday night and grew to include hundreds of law enforcement and, civil and civilian volunteers, including the Boy Scouts. Um, a neighbor reported seeing Andrew on Friday afternoon. A neighbor reported seeing Andrew on Friday afternoon with a woman who had been who had him by the hand and was leading him away towards the zoo. More witnesses came forward who had seen him in the company of his female abductor. Descriptions of her varied extremely wide. Uh, the only things the witness seemed to agree on was that she was slender um, and she had been wearing a dress with no hat. Her age had was various her age was various variously placed between 28 and 40 years old, which if you ask me, that is a huge gap. Think of a 28 year old and then think of a 20 or a 48 a 40 year old like there's no comparison because the time, the, the, the gap is so huge. Jesus Christ, people. Anyways, on Saturday, the FBI took the case and stationed an agent in the Ashley apartment. Because of the drowning threat that had been made to Richie, the police began dredging the, the lake in Delaware Park, which is Hoyt Lake, and the two ponds near Forest Lawn Cemetery. <clears throat> Then a call came into the police station. A mother of a six-year-old girl named Elizabeth Palermo had caught a bigger girl 
leading her daughter away by the hand. The girl took off running when Miss Palermo shouted at her, and Miss Palermo ran after her. The case ended up... Shit. The chase ended up abruptly when the fleeing girl stopped by a man named Robert Brown, who had been driving around looking for the girl who had approached his five-year-old daughter, Patty, um, and asked her to go for candy. Police officers took the girl and the agitated parents to the station, where she identified herself as Michelle Johnson of 91 Wade Street. Miss Palermo immediately told the police there was no such address. The girl then admitted her that her name was Cheryl Joles and she lived at 21 Leroy Avenue with her parents. And keep in mind, Cheryl was only 15 years old at the time. That blows my mind, but you know, I really shouldn't be shocked. Okay. Though her behavior had been strange, asking children to get candy amid a massive neighborhood search for this kidnapper, police didn't seriously consider her a suspect. They believed that they were looking for a woman, not a teenager, and an officer had told her she would just pick the wrong day to invite children to go for candy, and then Cheryl was released. And the police even asked Mr. Brown, the man that caught her, to give her a ride home. Are you fucking kidding me? <sighs> Whatever. I mean, fuck. What a fucking shitty thing to do, but... You know, let's continue. But the authorities were not finished with Cheryl. On Sunday morning, the FBI traced the call to the Ashley home. A female caller told Miss Ashley that her son was okay and he would be returned unharmed if the police investigation was called off. The call was traced to a telephone booth where agents found Cheryl Joles still talking to Miss Ashley. She was arrested, but told the FBI that she had been trying to console Miss Ashley. Unaware of her brush with the police the day before, the FBI wrote her off as a misguided teenager and let her go. They let her go again. Such disappointment. Okay. But the things that had taken a horrific turn. The body of Andrew Ashley was found floating in three feet of water in Delaware Park Lake. His hands and feet were tied with nylon stocking, a dish rag stuffed in his mouth. He wore only his underwear and a t-shirt. Cause of death was suffocation due to drowning. Medical examiner James C. Crichton later determined that Andrew had been bound and tossed into the lake within an hour of his abduction. Leads poured in, suspects were questioned, and days had passed without any arrest. Once again, young Richie Edgington turned out to be an excellent witness. Newspapers released a revised sketch of the kidnapper based on his description. The sketch showed a younger girl with her hair in a ponytail. He had described his abductor as old enough to be someone's mommy. But let's keep in mind here, Richie's mom was only 21 at the time. So 15 to 21, that's an even closer gap. And I mean... As a child, I guess, yeah, you could see someone that young and be like, oh, that could be someone's mommy. <sighs> the revised sketch prompted Miss Palermo and Mr. Brown to call the police again about the girl they had chased the previous week. Both parents felt Cheryl bore a strong resemblance to the sketch. 
On July 3rd, Cheryl was brought in for questioning. This time, she was openly hostile, ranting about how she hated policemen who were always following her everywhere. Duh. A search of Cheryl's house turned up several interesting items, including a journal of her daily activities with several references to Ashley and an undated, hand-drawn route through Delaware Park labeled The Way I Went Last Friday. At police headquarters, Joel's was questioned by Commissioner Felicita. A background check revealed that she had a very troubled past. At only 15, she had already been in mental hospitals twice, where her treatment had included shock therapy. At age 12, she was suspected of setting a fire at a group home where she was living. She currently lived with her parents and younger sister, but had been in and out of group homes or institutions for most of her life. Okay, let me just stop right there real quick. Um, from what I know, her family life wasn't great. Um, she wasn't the only one in and out of group homes. Um, her siblings were also in and out of group homes or living with family or, you know, they were never really home because um, their parents weren't exactly model parents. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, it's, yeah, she didn't have a great childhood. Let's just, let's just leave it at that. Family members gave the police more disturbing details. An aunt reported that some years before, she had found her young son tied up and left in a back room of her home. Cheryl had been staying with them at the time. An uncle told police that she had called him on Sunday morning to predict that Andrew Ashley's body would be found in the lake. However, he didn't believe that Cheryl would kill him. He said, you know, she's a troubled girl and he had tried to help her. Do you want to know how he tried to help her? Because I think this is the best help anyone could ever give anybody. He advised her not to take any babysitting jobs. Like, really? He didn't say, hey, maybe you should go talk to the police. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> if someone were to admit murder to me, I'd be like, hey, you know what? Maybe we should go and just talk to the cops. You know, I mean, I'll be with you. Let's go together. Let's go to the cops and, and talk about this. Not like, oh, you know what? Don't don't be a babysitter. Go get a newspaper job or go, you know, go walk dogs for a living, please. <laughs> like, shut the... F mm -hmm. Her uncle's a real turd. Cheryl was questioned by a psychiatrist, uh, Samuel Yokelson. Yokel he has a very weird spelled last name. Sorry. Her mother and... Commissioner Felicita were both present when Cheryl confessed to the doctor that she had carried out the kidnappings. She denied killing Andrew, though, claiming that he had been left bound and gagged on the lake shore and that he had must have rolled himself into the water. This is another problem I have with, with this story. <clears throat> As, okay, I'm sure she said this to them, but the thing is, is that Oh, bitch, she's lying. Because if, if anyone listening has ever been in Delaware Park to the big lake, you know that there is no beach. There is no taper into the water. It's like water land. That is it. That, and it's, that is it. There is, there is no, 
there, there is no, it does, he, you're not rolling into the, into the water. There's just no way, but let's keep going. A grand jury indicted Cheryl Joles on August 2nd, 1961. That was fast, by the way, because this all happened, what, two months before? Though District Attorney Carmen Ball said he he doubted that she would be fit to stand trial, be fit to stand trial, psychiatrists offered differing opinions on her sanity. But ultimately, a judge committed her to Medawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane on January 12, 1962. Two years later, a doctor at the hospital declared her mentally fit to stand trial. But after only two weeks in court, the judge ordered a mistrial. Observing her behavior in the courtroom, which included collapsing on the floor, agitation, and speaking out of turn, the judge determined that it was impossible to have a fair and impartial trial. Cheryl was returned to Madawan. Five years later, she petitioned for release. At a court hearing in November of 1969, two psychiatrists testified that Cheryl could no longer... <laughs> God, my mouth is garbage. Cheryl was no longer psychotic and was now able to understand the nature of the charges and assist in her own defense. However, the doctors feared that another trial could trigger another psychotic episode and could cause her to relapse. They recommended that the charges against her be dismissed. The court accepted the recommendation and all criminal charges against Cheryl Drolls were dropped. She was sent to the mental health facility in 1970 and then she was released as cured January 29th of 1971 these are some conflicting reports as to what happened after that point after she was released um one says she married had kids lived a normal life was a normal person and the other says that she secluded herself in this trailer. She was disheveled and she was just not with it. So I don't know. But you know what? Let's have a quick chat about, about lovely Cheryl. Um, like I said, I didn't know that this had taken place. You know, and my parents used to tell me so many stories about the city that I will probably end up relaying to you guys in bonus solo episodes if you want me to. But, you know, I feel like Cheryl was a fucked up kid. She had a shitty family life. You know, she didn't have any stability. And on top of that all, there was something loose in her brains. I mean... I've got all sorts of loose nuts and bolts bridling around in my head. And I mean, no one, no one really helped her. And it took killing a little boy to, to get her out of that situation with her family and into an institution for a few years. Do I agree that they let her go and she's cured? No, I do not. Mental health, you're not getting cured. There's no way in fuck that you're getting cured. Either she was an exceptional actress and liar, or they released a girl that wasn't cured. I mean, those are the only two fucking options here. So, I mean, yeah, that's the story of Cheryl Joel's. I mean, it's pretty sad, 
little boys, well, a little boy died. She, you know, she kidnapped a bunch of other kids and luckily those were, those kids were all safe, but still, uh, she's trash. I like to call her the boogie bitch. Cause she is, she's scary, yo. But anyways, so my sources for this was, uh, Kathleen, I'm sorry, my mouth is trash. This is my first solo episode. Just bear with me here. Catherine Pelinero.net and American Hauntings Inc.com. And of course, the book I had mentioned earlier, Who Killed Buffalo? Searching for the Murderous Pied Piper by Linda Dietrich Rose, which I will link her book. I highly recommend, even if you're not from here. I highly, highly, highly recommend this, this true crime book. She did a wonderful job. She spent so much time on it. She's great. She's a great white writer. Um, and she tells the story so well, but anyways, yeah, that's it. I mean, I can pop in and just add one small little thing is that up until this point in Buffalo, New York, People didn't lock their doors. You know, kids got to stay out and play with their friends. No one had to come home and check in. You know, kids were free range. They wandered off and they did what they did. And then they came home for supper. And then they usually went back out again after that. Um, But after the 60s, that all had changed. Parents were scared. Parents were paranoid, understandably. Um, you know, who can you trust if you can't trust the pretty young girl down the street? You know what I mean? I I get it. So doors were locked. Kids who were kept in the house, you know, you never saw a kid by himself on the street. It was, it just changed everything. And that's who killed Buffalo. So I really hope you enjoyed the story. I hope it inspired you to look up more on this case. Um, I'll be posting pictures on our Instagram and Facebook page and yeah, I'll link her, I'll link the, the book and everything in the description too. So you guys can check that out. It's like $8 Amazon prime, or you can get it like two ninety nine on Kindle. So I don't know if it's on, uh, audible, but I mean, it doesn't hurt to check. So, um, yeah, that's it. This is my solo episode. I'm sorry if I ranted and raved and said um and fucked up a lot because my mouth is trash. But thanks for listening. And I hope to, I don't know, do this again sometime. Bye. Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode. Be sure to follow, share, and rate us on your podcast apps.